Morning, everyone. Morning. Thanks, Chloe and Robbie. Well, have you had a good weekend? Did you get to go to the show at some point? Um, actually, this year I didn't get a chance, unfortunately. Yet, I was able to win something. How cool is that? So I bought a, um, a raffle ticket, which was just to support the show. I didn't think too hard about it, to be honest, so don't have a go at me later on. Um, but I, <laughs> I bought a ticket, right, and thinking, oh, just whatever, support it. And uh, I won a gardening bag and little gardening tools. I've never won anything, ever, ever at all. How good was that? So I'm, I haven't collected it yet, but I received a phone call yesterday at the same party Michelle was at, and, um, and so I'm going to have to go and, go and get it. So not that I'd really do much gardening. Michelle, that's the, you can have it if you like, dear. There you go. So anyway, I hope you had a good weekend. Um, it's great to be together this morning and wonderful to open God's word together, encourage each other, and, um, uh, and, and yeah, encourage each other, encourage each other. Um, particularly if, you're, if, if you see anyone you don't know. Let's remind ourselves of our little rule, okay? If you see anyone you don't know and you don't talk to very often, maybe it's a, some, some of our Cape and Ray guys, Robbie and Chloe and Emma here, um, who pronounce, um, mispronounce um, 1 Peter, unfortunately. It's, it's 1 Peter, not 1 Peter. Um, <laughs> cr- crazy Canadians, anyway. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding, whatever you like. Um, Anyway, if you see something you don't know, hey, why don't you say hello to them this morning? That'd be good. Okay. Well, friends, we're starting this uh, new series. It'll be great to have your Bible open to 1 Peter. We're not working all the way out through 1 Peter. Um, We're we're following the adventures of Peter and how, uh, as he looks at the cross, uh, where where will that take us? As an eyewitness to the cross, uh, what does he see and um, uh, what does he feel as well? So we're we're doing that. Uh, So... In your, out, in your um, bulletins, there's an outline that'll be helpful to have out in front of you. And then having one Peter open as well is very important. You've got to check that I'm saying what the Word of God is saying. That's your job today. My job is to be as clear as I can be. Uh, well, Peter, the, um, the disciple of Jesus, the apostle, eyewitness, he was one of the first disciples called to follow Jesus, a fisherman, Jesus named him Peter, meaning rock. He, he, was, uh, he would become rock-like in the Christian church as it, as it grew and expanded. He witnessed Jesus' teaching, his miracles. He loved to ask questions. He betrayed Jesus. Uh, most think he was at the cross, most commentators. He witnessed Jesus' resurrection, his ascension. He played a leadership role amongst the apostles, a task that Jesus commissioned him for. He was imprisoned at least three times for following Jesus. He performed at least three miracles. He was bold and uncompromising in declaring the truth about Jesus. And he died in Rome during the persecution of Christians under Nero in about 65 AD. Not long after, he wrote his two letters addressed to Christians dispersed, scattered, alienated and persecuted for following Jesus. As uh, David Mulready says in his little book that we've been having a look at, some of us, here is a picture of a man who witnessed Jesus, who witnessed all that Jesus said and did as we explore his evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection. We can be confident that his testimony is accurate and reliable. So let's pray as we open up to this truly remarkable letter Peter wrote to these persecuted Christians. Uh, 
he pours out his heart in these opening few paragraphs about the saving power of God. So 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. And we pray that you would be opening our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say. We pray that we would be encouraged and, and spurred on to give our whole lives to you, to look forward to one day when we'll see you face to face. And Lord, to praise and thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in giving us Jesus. Amen. Well, each of the, the births of our three children have their own little story. So, Wes, I haven't, actually, I haven't checked with my kids about this. I probably should do this, shouldn't I? Anyway, I'm sure they'll be okay. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, now, Wes, was, his birth was memorable because it, well, due to a midnight car trip across Sydney to the hospital through the pouring rain in a VN Commodore that went sideways a whole lot better than it went straightways. <laughs> and it was a nervous trip, let me tell you. Um, the birth was long and dangerous, but we don't talk about that now. Um, Eve came into this world uh, due to a crazy person who ran into the back of our car while we were stopped at a set of traffic lights, waiting for the lights to go green. Anyway, Eve said, I'm cooked, I'm done, I'm ready, I'm out of here. And Eve came into the world. Archie, well, Archie had a number of false alarms before he finally decided to join us. Uh, when he finally decided to come, to arrive, uh, we weren't really sure whether he was serious or having us on again. But anyway, he did come, and we were very thankful and overjoyed when we met him. Uh, and we were very ready to stop having children as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> none of this four children, every Anglican minister must have four children, not anymore, not with us. Now, in many ways, verses 3 to 12 of 1 Peter 1 are a song of praise in response to the new birth God gives, the salvation God gives those who put their trust in him, or as verse 1 says, his elect. Each thought or word in this paragraph actually leads to another. Each word is a jumping off point for the next thought. It's, it's actually one very long sentence in the original Greek. It's quite complicated, actually. He first praises God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and from this praise flows the rest of this very, very long sentence. Now, I've given you, I'm going to put up an outline in a minute, uh, a very brief outline of how these ideas develop, and I'll read it through. Now, I know many of you love my diagrams, and many of you get confused by my diagrams, and for many of you, it's both. So, um, but today, this will just have to do, okay? Here we go, let's go. Let's see how this sort of makes sense. God, who mercifully has given us also new birth, new birth into a living hope and into an imperishable inheritance kept for you, you who are shielded by the power of God until salvation comes. Salvation in which you rejoice despite trials. Trials which prove faith is genuine and result in praise to Jesus. Jesus, whom you have not seen, but whom you love and in whom you believe. Joyful belief, which has the goal of the salvation of your souls, which salvation was spoken of by the prophets, prophets who long to see the meaning of their prophecies revealed, but which are now revealed in the preaching of the gospel. There you go. Uh, if you can make a diagram up of that, please give it to me. Man, that would be fantastic. But it's a good little summary, I think, that I stole off a commentary. Well, let's look more closely at these amazing words from God through the Apostle Peter. 
uh, the, the church leader, Peter the eyewitness. There are three sections as I see it. We'll spend most of our time on the first two. In fact, I'll tell you now, we're going to spend all of our time on these first two sections and I'm not going to touch the last section. That's for you to do on your, on your own. Okay, well, Peter, first Peter praises God. Or he gives thanks to God. So praise is because of the new birth he and the Christians he writes to have received. Just like the birth of children, it's new life and it's God as Father who causes this new birth. Now Paul describes this new birth as a new creation. Uh, Jesus explains it as being born again. The salvation we receive, being saved by God. It's not something we deserve or can achieve on our own. Uh, God does this work in Christians, those God has called to be his. He does this calling simply out of his mercy. We can't do anything to make him do it. Uh, just like being born physically. We, it's not, not our job. Uh, our parents do it for us. God does it for us. God must do it. And that, that's reason to give thanks to God. God, out of his mercy, has called us to be his, and he saved us, given us new birth. Now, in God's mercy, then, that the Father has given us this new life in which uh, twin goals are revealed. And verses 3 and 4 speak of these twin goals that come from this new birth, this salvation we receive. It's a new birth into a living hope. Now, that is, this is our confident expectation. Our confident expectation that certain things will happen in the future. So biblical hope then is very different to hope as understood by the world around us. Much of, the wor of, of worldly hope, I guess you could call it blind optimism. So for example, I hope the Wallabies win the World Cup. It's blind optimism. All right? It's based on very little foundation of reality. Um, but worldly hope uh, can also be a genuine heartfelt wishing for change. So, during the week, as yet another woman was attacked and killed by a man. Another. Well, we hoped, as we saw this news story again, and it happens again and again, we hoped and we hope that women can be more respected and safer in our society, that they can get home from work in one piece. Uh, but biblical hope is very different. It's so much better it's sure and it's certain. It's the conviction that God's work in us and for us through Jesus Christ will be brought to final completion successfully. For God is faithful, we can trust him and he always delivers on his promises. Now, note too that this hope is living, it's alive because it's a vibrant reality throughout the believer's life. In fact, Jesus teaches that our eternal life has already begun with our new birth. John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We're citizens of heaven, Paul writes in Philippians 2. But it's not, this, not just the present that's spoken of here. This living hope also speaks of our future. For our future rests on, we read it here in 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It rests on Jesus being alive. Uh, Robbie read for us 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 20 to 23 tell us that because Jesus has been raised, those who trust him, that's the church, Christian people, 
can know that they too will be raised, will be like Jesus one day with him in heaven. That is sure and certain because God keeps his promises. So, for those Christians who are persecuted, who are scattered throughout, it's actually modern-day Turkey. If you want to know where those places are, think modern-day Turkey. It's about that sort of area. So for those Christians that Peter writes to who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, in exile, suffering trial after trial in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, and perhaps feeling that they don't belong to this world, for those Christians that Peter writes to, for those Christians in Pakistan right now, who are about to celebrate Easter, who, who know that the chances of a suicide bomber increases exponentially at this time of year. They know it's coming. There'll be some attack. Or for those Christians in North Korea who meet in lounge rooms illegally with Bibles that they have to hide away under floorboards or in secret places. Or for those Christians in Somalia who all know a friend or family member, a brother and sister in Christ who's been beaten, who's been attacked, killed, who's lost their job, all for the name of Jesus. For those Christians who face trials, whether that means persecution or not, they can be assured that God keeps his promises. They can be assured that they too one day will be raised like Jesus That was Peter's message to those scattered Christians in exile, without a home, being persecuted for their faith. And of course, that's God's message for us today too. Well, the second second part of this new birth that we've been talking about leads to an imperishable inheritance. Another reason why he praises God. Now, the reality is most people born into wealthy families are likely to receive an inheritance. Most people. And not all people. You come across these very wealthy people who say, my children are getting nothing of my billions of dollars of wealth. And the children go, thanks very much. That's just great. Um, I read this little story during the week. Uh, This man one day hears that a distant uncle of his has passed away. He's a little sad, but he's only a little bit sad, and uh, for they, really, they didn't really know each other very well. But a few later, a package arrives in the mail. It contains his inheritance from the estate. It's a violin, and it's a painting. Now, he has no idea what to do with them. Well, after pondering the matter a little bit, thinking it through, he takes it to an appraiser. And after a couple days, this appraiser calls back and says, I've finished with my analysis. I've I've got some good news. There's no doubt at all that what you have is a genuine Van Gogh and a genuine Stradivarius. The man is ecstatic. I can't wait to sell these and and, and I can sell them for millions. The appraiser says, well, you can sell them and and they'll fetch some money for their novelty value. But not millions. You see, the truth is Stradivarius wasn't much of a painter. And Van Gogh made lousy violins. (laughs) Well, let's, let's have a look at this inheritance that a Christian receives because of God's mercy. Uh, It had worth like no other inheritance. It has worth, and, and nor can this worth, of course, nor can this inheritance be squandered by parents, by the way. It'll never perish, 
spoil or fade. See, most earthly things eventually decay. But here, this inheritance refers to all the promises that God has made to his people. And they will never pass away and they will never decay. Just think of all those promises God has made. Now, right now, this inheritance is kept in heaven for us, we read. Kept for you until that final day when we all see Jesus face, face to face. See, Peter now turns to a description of God's great power in providing for this salvation, for this inheritance. It's actually further encouragement for believers. Now, he uses the word shield. Let's have a look at verse 5 as we think about this inheritance. That can never perish, spool or fade. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is the sort of thing that Peter has in mind as he writes. It's a Roman soldier's shield. You notice a few things about it from the first century. Um, notice the strength. You can notice too that no doubt it's heavy uh, and the size of it, it, it almost covers the whole body really. And I reckon it would have done the job, don't you think? If you could hold the thing up, it would have done the job. But looking back at verse 5, let's notice what actually shields the believer. If you've got a Bible there, look carefully at it. You see, it's not faith that shields the believer. It's God's power that shields the believer and protects him, her. You see, it's who we have faith in that always counts. Not ourselves, not our wealth, not our skills and gifts, intellect, not the things of this world, but God, for it's his power that shields us. We have faith or trust in God, like holding on to a shield in battle, trusting that it will protect. For that's what God does for those who trust him in difficult times, in trials and sufferings. And God began this work. Remember we read before in, in verses 1 and 2, really. God began this work and he will ensure that the one who trusts him will survive whatever is thrown at them in this world. And he will ensure that they will arrive safely on the day of Christ's return. Because God's inheritance can neither perish, spoil or fade. And again, you see, for those Christians threatened and beaten, and without homes. Well, they know they have a home with Jesus and he is taking them there. He is shielding them and protecting them and taking them home. So it's no wonder in verse 6 then that Peter rejoices again. Verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. And that is all that's been said so far in verses 3 to 5, really. In this you greatly rejoice. But there's a joy, another joy coming up in a few moments, an inexpressible and glorious joy, Peter will refer to in a moment, that may well take us by surprise. Let's pick things up from verse 6. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Okay, so here's our, here's our question then. We need to come to terms with this question. Most people ask this question. If God shields his people, 
and has such a wonderful salvation in store for us, why does he allow so much suffering to continue? It's a fair question, isn't it? If God's shielding us and protecting us, why does he allow that suffering or trials to continue? Now, over the years as a, as a minister, um, I've seen people suffering dreadfully in many different ways. Uh, illness, family breakdowns, um, and, and some suffering for their faith where they've had to flee their home country, come to another country, simply because of the name of Jesus. In verse 6, Peter writes all kinds of trials because I think he's not just talking about persecution, although that's certainly prominent in these churches. There's no doubt about that. That was the Roman Empire at the time. But he's also acknowledging that suffering comes in different forms, in different ways and at different times. But in the end, he wants his readers to know that for anyone who takes up with Jesus, trials of some size and stripe are inevitable. You know, in the, um, in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, uh, this, this is the race where rich people empty their wallets across the Bass Strait. Um, that, they know that things will go wrong. They know that. That's the reality of ocean racing. Things are going to go wrong. You, you can't cross these waters without some type of trial. Some days you get a nice nor'easter just blowing you down the coast. Wonderful. Sun's out. You'll be hanging your legs over the side, maybe shipping, uh, sipping a glass of wine. Who knows? Um, about it. But it, you, you'll be enjoying the wonder of the ocean. Wonderful days sailing away down there. But on other days, oh, you'll fight against a southerly, a howling southerly, four metre high waves and, the, and torn sails and broken equipment and seasickness and bitter cold. If you really want to get to Hobart, the reality is you'll, ha you'll, you'll have hard days and you'll have easier days. The reality of the Christian life is that we will face all kinds of trials. There'll be hard days and easier days. There'll be good seasons and difficult ones. Now Peter, an eyewitness who saw his share of hard days, he writes that we must go through the difficult waters of trials and even suffering if we are to arrive at our inheritance. But why? Still haven't answered that question, have we? Why? Why does God let it, these trials continue and these, this suffering continue? What's the purpose of them? Maybe it's a question you're asking right now in your life. As time is difficult, you're in one of those harder seasons of life. Why does God let it continue? Can't he finish it up soon? I've had enough. Well, let's look at verse 7. Speaking of these kinds of trials, verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, trials are not arbitrary. You know, unlike the atheist whose faith, and I use that word on, on purpose, whose faith in times of suffering is in the randomness of the universe, 
Trials for the believer in Jesus, they have a purpose. In fact, they've got a divine purpose. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith. Now, now right now, uh, I'm not sure what the price of gold is. I don't know if anyone knows that. If you follow that, um, I've never really followed the price of gold, but apparently the price of gold goes up when the economy is a little bit nervous. I read that somewhere. I don't actually know what that means. What does it mean the economy is nervous? So we all sitting around going, oh, no. Um, anyway, some smart person wrote that somewhere in an article that I read. So the price of gold goes up. Now, there's a bit of ignorance from me. Um, but what I do know is that gold is valuable and always has been. It's quite beautiful too, isn't it? Uh, I had a gold uh, wedding ring, but it doesn't fit my fat finger anymore. Um, unfortunately, that's a bit sad, isn't it? So Michelle and I are saving up for something else, um, some something. Yeah, we're, we're working on that. Anyway, that's okay. Yeah, you know the stories of the Australian gold rush. They're, they're, if you read those stories, they're mad. They want to get their hands on this gold. It's so valuable. They're desperate. But the gold we first dig out of the ground... Well, it, if you know anything about this sort of thing, it contains impurities most of the time. It, it needs to be refined by fire. Uh, that's the process where gold is heated to a, a, a molten state so that the impurities that come to the surface can be removed and, and then it will be pure, you see? But even then, well, it will still ultimately be destroyed and it, and it would decay. You're starting to see the point that Peter's making, maybe about trusting, trusting God in times of trials. You see, understanding that God's purposes for us include various trials is important. For by them, well, we are made pure. Our faith is strengthened. The impurities of this world are removed from us and, and we are made fit for heaven. Now, let me illustrate this slightly differently. A, sim a simple bar of iron ore, okay? A simple bar of iron ore pulled out from the earth. It might be worth $5, just that bar of iron ore. However, that same bar, when made into horseshoes, well, that'll probably be worth about $10.50. Now, if the owner of that, uh, that iron ore bar decided to make the bar into needles for sewing, well, it can raise in value to over $3,000. Uh, and if it was turned into springs for expensive watches, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars, this simple bar of iron ore. What made the difference, of course, is simply the amount of heat by which the iron bar was tempered and honed. Heat or trials gives our faith more value. It strengthens it. it. It hones it, tempers it. You see, I think Peter wants to make two points here. He says that God values faith and that faith has eternal value. Our trust in God. Our faith is far more precious to God than a bar of iron, even more precious than pure gold. But he also wants to say that Peter shows that faith, like gold, can be proved genuine when it's placed under a bit of heat through testing or through trials. And the question for us then, well, how then do we respond to trials when our faith is tested, 
We know the purpose behind it, this divine purpose. How are we going to respond? Because our faith will be tested. We will go through trials. We will question God. See, one option, of course, is just to flee. I'm out of here. This is just too hard. And our faith is tested because of hard days, difficult seasons. We push God away. We, we blame God or we just neglect God. We stop praying. We stop meeting with God's people, reading his word. And then we just slip away. Off we go. Our faith slips away. Jesus actually warned us of this bad option in the parable of the sower. He writes, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. See, what we read in 1 Peter here, the encouragement for believers, believers facing trials, uh, for Christians who suffer, the encouragement for believers is to be rooted in Jesus, in God's mercy, in the new birth into a living hope which can never perish, spoil or fade. Is that you? Is that what your faith's rooted in right now? And the encouragement for Christians is to trust in God's power and not our own. And the encouragement for Christians is to have trials refine our faith so that they may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus returns. The crown of glory that will never fade away, uh, chapter 5 verse 4 says. That's our praise and glory and honour, by the way, to us when Jesus returns. The crown of glory. So here's the truth that might surprise you, we were mentioning before. Verses 8 and 9 go on to say that when we do this, when we love him and believe in him, even in tough times where we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We're not going to get to verses 10 to 12 today. I did intend to at the start of the week, but I just got carried away in the first, these verses here up to, up to verse 9. Uh, you can do that at some other point. And the heading there I've given you, I think, um, is this new birth is prophesied and proclaimed. Anyway, I, I want to leave you with um, some words from... Uh, a lady from Sudan, just having a read of some websites and this Open Doors website, which I follow a fair bit it's for persecuted Christians. She's a widow, uh, her name's Seda, in her 50s. She faces pressure from her family, the story goes, uh, to deny Jesus and return to Islam. Uh, it's a very, very common story in that part of the world for Christians. Sudan is... Um, an Islamic country and it's moving toward becoming an Islamic state under full Sharia law and all that that involves in conservative Islam. Christians today in Sudan, uh, Sudan face persecution daily. They, uh, churches are destroyed. Church leaders are arrested and falsely accused of crimes they didn't commit and so on and so forth. Following Jesus in Sudan is dangerous. It's life-threatening. No exaggeration. Yet in God's mercy, they have the certainty of new birth into a living hope, like us, even though life around us, around them, is so uncertain. So let Sada's words encourage us to continue trusting Jesus. It's only a short quote, and then I'm going to pray. She says, I am determined to continue trusting the Lord even if things are uncertain.
Let's make that prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you, God, that in your mercy you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can neither, never perish, spoil or fade. We thank you, God, that you shield us by your power until one day we see you face to face. Lord, help us find that great joy in that. We thank you. We praise you for it. Lord, we pray that as we continue to trust in you, even though things around us sometimes are very uncertain, help us to be certain because we know that your promises are indeed certain. Lord, thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.